And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Dan Goldman became a familiar figure to Americans a year ago when he was the senior advisor and director of investigations for the House Intelligence Committee, did most of the questioning of witnesses in the probe leading up to the first impeachment of Donald Trump. He also is a veteran prosecutor who uh, worked in the Southern District of New York and a well-known legal commentator. And I thought it would be great to sit down with him now to talk about what's going on and also to talk about his very interesting and unique journey. Here's that conversation. Dan Goldman, it's it's really great to see you, particularly at this moment. Uh, you've got a rich story, and I want to explore that. But uh, first, I want to tap your expertise. So welcome. Good to see you. Thanks so much for having me, David. It's great to be here. Yeah, we were joking before we started rolling about it's sort of a a not funny joke about the fact that impeachment has now become an annual event. You were involved in the last one. I'm wondering as you um, as you observe this one, what your sense is of how it's a much different kind of uh, trial than the one that you were involved in, uh, because you're sitting in a room full of witnesses. Uh, there are a number of reasons it's different, but that is certainly a critical one. Um, and not just the witnesses in the Senate, but so many Americans witnessed mm-hmm. these events, um, you know, who are watching them again. Um, unlike the Ukraine matter where, you know, it was more of a typical investigation where you don't have live footage of everything that transpired. Um, This one you do. And the senators, I I think, um, certainly felt uh, like they were brought back to that day. But what was interesting and I think so powerful about the presentation of the narrative of what occurred on January 6th is so many of the senators had no idea so about so much of what was shown. Everyone had their own individual experience, but no one understood what was happening across the Capitol or outside or downstairs or upstairs. They just lived it themselves. And I thought what was really powerful is, and and the house managers did an excellent job. um, And and some of my former colleagues putting this together is that it, it really painted a, the, the fullest picture we've seen yet, about what exactly happened on that day and how close so many of these senators and and other officials were to being in the line of fire. I'm not a lawyer. Uh, I I defy my mother and and I I never did become a, a lawyer, but I don't think it took a lawyer to see that was a very tight case yesterday, not just the uh, vivid, vivid depiction of events, as you said, but uh, but the 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 build up to it, the the case of what Trump did uh, for months and months and months uh, leading up to it, the case uh, about what he did to actually bring people to Washington on that day, uh, and to uh, you know before he ever spoke, uh, 
Uh, I mean, the, 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 you know, creating a sense of premeditation uh, for uh, what happened. And then the case about uh, what he didn't do uh, once the insurrection was going on and his failure to act, which should be infuriating to senators, but also uh, really goes to the uh, goes to the uh, the essence of whether he lived up to his oath. And you could absolutely have charged an entire separate impeachable offense based on his dereliction of duty after the fact that day. But it goes right to the heart of what his state of mind was and why we do know um, that this was what he expected and what he wanted. Um, but what I really thought was effective is, you know, when you when you sit and watch, whether it was that 13-minute video on day one or the presentations of Stacey Plaskett and Eric Swalwell yesterday going through the actual riot, Donald Trump, of course, is not a part of that aspect of the story. What occurred at the Capitol did not include Donald Trump. He was notwithstanding the fact that he told them he was going to go there. He wasn't there. But what they did so well in the lead up to that section of the presentation was to build layer upon layer of how integrally involved Donald Trump was in the buildup to the events of January 6th. And yes, of course, you know, he incited them that day in the speech, but it was so much more than that. And what I just I thought it was a really, really well done presentation starting back in May and June of how he was planting the seed for the big lie that this was that the only way he was going to lose was if the election was rigged and then how he celebrated on Twitter, I love Texas, retweeting the video of some Trump supporters trying to drive a Biden-Harris bus off of the road. That is a specific endorsement of violent behavior by the president himself. And then shortly after the election, when he used a lot of the same rhetoric that he used on January 6th, and what ensued was uh, were many of his supporters going to various state houses and election uh, sent counting centers where they were, you know, carrying weapons and threatening violence and encouraging to stop the count to the Million MAGA March on December 12th, where there was actual violence that occurred. And not only did he not, uh, um, you know, did he not speak about the violence directly and did he not disavow it and did he not you know try to stamp down the the violence that day but he encouraged it and then those same people who were involved in january 6th and and you know his rhetoric of course was inflammatory and even though he didn't say go to the capitol and storm the capitol what what he said was the same this the the sort of same rhetoric that he had used that they uh, to incite violence among his supporters and his supporters. I would I thought this was so effective as well. His supporters understood him 
to mean yeah. that they should go and literally try to physically stop the certification of the votes. And so it was really a well done setup that once we got to the actual d- events of January 6th, when Stacey Plaskett called it Trump's mob, we really understood that it was Trump's mob. Yeah, you know, um, as you speak admiring, admiringly of the case, it, it strikes me that storytelling is so much a part of these kinds of proceedings uh, and uh, really uh, bringing the narrative to life about what happened. Uh, and, and they did that. But you also said, even though he didn't say storm the Capitol, uh, that's what they, they, they interpreted the message that way. That's precisely what Republican senators who have already indicated that they're not under any circumstance going to vote uh, for his conviction uh, will hang their hat on that. And the fact that at the end he said, you know, march peacefully uh, down to uh, down to the Capitol. But it underscores something that you uniquely must appreciate. You sat in that chamber during the uh, during the uh, impeachment trial a year ago and um you know, you're used to a certain set of rules and uh, uh, parameters. Uh, you know, you, you, you're used to impartial jurors uh, and uh, the rules of, uh, uh, you know, uh, litigation. Um, this is a political exercise at the end of the day. We treat it like it is a prosecution. It is not a prosecution in the sense that uh, senators aren't bound by the same rules. They do take an oath of impartiality that they all could probably be impeached for violating that oath. Uh, <laughs> but how how weird is it to sit there knowing that you can put on the greatest case in the world, the greatest case in history, and you're probably going to lose? It was a very unusual experience in that regard last time around i i like i said afterwards that i felt like there were almost two parallel trials going on there was the actual evidence in the actual case that we were presenting and then there was sort of the political reaction and the political fallout and the political influence um i i my the biggest lesson i learned from the last senate trial is it is a misnomer to call it a trial, and it is it bears so little resemblance to what actually happens in a courtroom. And frankly, it starts in the, on, on a different path because there really is no judge. Chief Justice Roberts presided over the last one because pre, uh, Donald Trump was the president at the time, but he didn't make a single substantive ruling. Yeah. Every rule... Every you know decision is made by the Senate itself, so you don't have anyone enforcing anything. And the the best example of why that would be so valuable in in this trial is the Senate has the power under the Constitution, the sole power to try impeachments. So whatever rules the Senate makes, whatever um, resolutions that they pass. That is the end and end of the story in terms of setting the parameters for the trial. So the there was a motion to dismiss on Tuesday to dismiss the article because 
Um, this trial is taking place after Donald Trump has his term has expired. And the Senate voted to deny that motion 56 to 44 and to rule that it is constitutional to go forward with this trial. In a courtroom, if you had a legal ruling, that would be the end of it. Uh, you may be appeal it at the end, but you go forward and the lawyers could not argue to the jury that this is yeah, an right. unconstitutional law and the jury could not rely on that legal explanation in making their decision. So in if you were to follow that kind of exercise here, the senators should not be able to rely on this unconstitutional argument that they made that because it's after his term has expired, he can't uh, be tried. They should not be able to rely on that for the factual determination on the merits as to whether or not Donald Trump violated his oath of office by inciting this insurrection. But that's what we're going to see. And yes. that is, you know, a shame. I think it's, it is a dereliction of the senator's duty uh, to both follow their own rules and their own laws and to take the oath of office to be an impartial juror, so to speak, in this case. You know, on this point of he didn't tell them to go down there and do what they did, and he was shocked and surprised like everybody else. And uh, would the would the evidence that was presented yesterday be compelling in a in a court of law, even without his explicit instruction to the crowd to go down and storm the Capitol? So I prosecuted um, the mafia. Uh, in the yeah, Southern District right. of New York. We'll talk about that, yeah. And um, I prosecuted a mob boss for uh, murder and, and racketeering, among other crimes. And Sounds dangerous, by the way, but go ahead. <laughs> uh, well, it's a whole other story. I actually <laughs> felt more concerned for my safety uh, impeaching, <laughs> doing the impeachment than I did uh, prosecuting mob bosses. But it's a very similar dynamic, which is that a mob boss does not say to his soldiers, please go kill this person. The mob boss says, hey, I need you to take care of this. And as Michael Cohen, I think, very persuasively explained uh, when he testified before Congress, Donald Trump speaks like a mob boss. He talks to people in a way where there is plausible deniability, but everyone understands what he means. And if you need an example of that, look at the Proud Boys. When Donald Trump said in react, when he was asked if he would denounce the Proud Boys in that debate on September 29th, and he said, stand back and stand by, they made t-shirts, Yeah, the Proud Boys did, based on that expression. Now, that in and of itself does not say go be, be, you know, go be violent in support of me, but the message was taken and it was very clear. And so what what is an advantage that the managers have in this case that they that, you know, a prosecutor would not have in a courtroom is it, it is hard. I mean, in, in some way, it is harder to get in evidence in a courtroom as to how people interpreted what somebody said. Um, here, though, 
it's perfectly permissible to play all these videos of Trump supporters saying that they were there at the Capitol at the direction of Donald Trump, that they were doing what Donald Trump wanted. So that that defense um, kind of falls by the wayside when the people who he's speaking to understood him to mean go commit violence. So what the argument then has to be, they misunderstood what he said, but that's where all of that evidence in the lead up, where he's supporting violence, where he know where he see he's on notice. Right after the election, when he makes some of the same, you know, they're stealing this from us, yeah. they're stealing this election, we can't let that happen. And he sees people going out with, you know, violent intentions and weapons in reaction to him. He knows, he's on notice as to what reaction his supporters will have to the same rhetoric. You know, his lawyers, and I should ask you what you thought of their presentation, uh, but his lawyer, uh, Bruce Castor, said, look, if he is guilty of instigating insurrection and a riot, uh, he's a private citizen now. He should be indicted. You should arrest him. Um, I presume he said that assuming that there wasn't going to be enough evidence in a court of law to actually do that. Is that is that fair? Or, or was he just stumbling along there? Well, uh, he, I think he was stumbling along. I think um, I think the worst decision that they made was to switch up what their plan was. It's it's very difficult if you have a plan going in as a lawyer, and you make a last minute change that you're not prepared for. That usually does not work out well. But look, it's a uh, it's sort of a quintessential um, legal theory, which is just live to fight another day. Right. The issue we're they're facing right now is impeachment. If they can say, if they can kick this to a criminal process or a civil litigation proceeding in a court somewhere else, if they can just get rid of this for any reason whatsoever, that's what they want to do. They'll live to fight another day. If he gets investigated and charged in court, then they'll say, oh, well, they should have impeached him, not charged <laughs> yeah. him, you know, in, in court. I mean, there's, it, it's, it's sort of a, a euphemistic you know, uh, phrase or, or kind of, uh, <laughs> uh, strategy that, that so many uh, attorneys use, but, you know, look, I, I there should be a, a more, a fuller accounting of what occurred. I mean, the one thing that we don't have a lot of in this impeachment that you would want in any kind of a criminal prosecution is a better sense of, of, you know, what Trump knew when he knew it, what intelligence did he receive? What did he say or do to with the in regard to the National Guard, both before and after? Uh, what comments did he make as he was watching it? I mean, we know we had the uh, the newspaper article that he was delighted as he was watching it and he wasn't responsive. But there's a lot more that you would want to get out of that. I don't think you you don't need that for impeachment. Remember, impeachment is a far lesser. Right issue in right. a criminal proceeding because we're not talking about him going to jail you're talking about forfeiture of office or disqualification from yeah. office yeah. okay so what so right. so you you know you have to go be a businessman you can't be a politician anymore i mean it's not the end of the world it's not going to jail right so you know let's let's remember that the standard is so much lower for impeachment right. because it's simply are you up to serving 
the people of this country in an office of of honor and trust and and you know power and uh it's it's you know if you're not it's not the end of the world it's hard to read the presidential oath of office and see the fa- uh, the fact pattern that we saw yesterday and say yeah i think he fulfilled his duties uh it's very hard to do that one last question relative to this. Uh, the prosecutor in uh, Fulton County has opened up an investigation about Trump's efforts to overturn the results there, his call to Secretary Raffensperger, to investigators there, to others, the governor, seeking to overturn the result. Based on what you know, and you probably listened to the whole phone call as as, as I've listened to the whole phone call he made. Yeah. Um do you think he has exposure there? I think the law, as you read it in Georgia, the Georgia state law, seems like it uh, very well could apply to to this situation. What what I would be curious about, and this is where an investigation would would be important, is we have that call, but what we we understand, you know, we understand that the U.S. attorney in Atlanta abruptly resigned under the reports under some pressure um what what kind of conversations did trump or surrogates agents of trump have with that u.s attorney what other conversations did they have with brian kemp the governor you would want to fill in a a broader picture than Mm -hmm. that simple recording and you know this is just sort of prosecution 101 and defense 101 you'll remember in ukraine matter the Trump's defense wanted to narrow the issue to the text of that July 25th call. And they parsed it very closely and tried to explain it. Of course, we wanted to broaden it and we did broaden it to show that this was a months long scheme. And that was a critical, critical piece of evidence, but it was not the whole story. Similarly here, January 6th speech and uh, Mm -hmm. Trump is, is not at all the whole story, even though, what I expect to hear from the defense is to focus exclusively on that that speech. And it's similar with the Raffensperger call. That's what we know and that's what we're focused on. And boy, to have a recording like that is you yeah. know, evidentiary gold, yes. um, you know, when you're trying to prosecute this. But it it makes all of the other witness statements so much more uh, realistic and it corroborates them if they are going to be a similar of nature. So that's why it's, I mean, not only you have his own words, but it also, you can't refute a recording. So when you have witness statements that are sort of similar to what you hear Donald Trump doing in that, it makes it a lot easier to charge. But I think you need to paint the fuller picture Mm -hmm. in Georgia. But uh, based on the reading of the law, um, it absolutely could apply in this. Yeah, well, she's obviously casting a very uh, large net, too, and doing the things that you uh, that you suggest. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. Let me turn to to you and your own journey, and uh, if we can just go back, uh, first of all, a half a dozen generations or so. I've said this before to others. There are people who come on this podcast who are stories, of, you know, stories of people who came from the wrong side of the tracks and lifted <laughs> lifted themselves up 
you came decidedly from the right side of the tracks. Um, tell me about the history of your uh, of your family going back to, I guess, your great 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 grandfather or something, Levi Strauss. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's uh, you are you are right. I um I am the descendant of the true American dream in many respects and my um great 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 uncle was uh Levi Strauss um who obviously went out to San Francisco in the gold rush and started making some jeans for the miners um and it turned into pretty good gig uh, you know, there iconic yeah. us yes. brand yeah, yeah exactly and and so the the company has mostly was mostly you know trade uh, run by you know my family members over during the 20th century um it's now public and it's now not run by by my family but i grew up um you know with the knowledge that um I was incredibly lucky uh, to be, a, you know, a, a descendant of a, an iconic brand of in the United States and a, a well-off family, um, and philanthropy and giving back with a very, very long and deep history of philanthropy uh, as well. Levi Strauss himself was uh, he was a, a, an immigrant, a, a Jew from uh, Bavaria, and uh, uh, helped establish the kind of reformed Jewish community in San Francisco. And then, you know, you, your family has been very deeply, deeply uh, involved in a lot of causes, lifting up uh, people, the environment, and so on. So I, I didn't want, I think that part of the story needs to be told as well. Well, I appreciate it. And it, it is true. And, and it's something that I grew up just a part of the fabric of sort of my my life and my existence is that, um, you know, we were, we were very lucky, as you say, to be on the right side of the tracks. And I have lived my life uh, in recognition of that and wanting very much to give back. It's a, both in terms of, you know, financial philanthropy, but time and for my personal professional goals, uh, public service. And so that has been, um, the sort of the through line in, in everything that I've uh, tried to do and want to do in, in my life is is to, to try to give back to a country that has given so much to my family. Um, and so that's sort of how I ended up in, on this track. You also had an example in your dad who was a federal prosecutor. Um, and uh, uh, I want to ask you a little bit about how that influenced your ultimate decision, you think. But um, but you also, and I say this as someone who lost my dad at a very young age, but you lost him at a very young age. Uh, he was 43, I guess. You were 13. Um, uh, tell me about that and that, how that impacted on you. Yeah, that was, you know, that was the seminal sort of event in, in my life. And, and I, I like to, you know, I, I ended up coming around to it by... Uh, or accepting it as to say, you know, I was, I had a lot of luck and benefits, but I also had to deal as, as you did, David, with some real adversity and losing my father to a brain tumor when I was 13 years old. Um, it happened very quickly and he passed away very quickly. Um, and, you know, I was the oldest of, of three children, um, at 13 years old, my brother was 10 and my sister was seven. And, 
you know, we, we had to sort of piece it together. And um, my dad has been such a, a motivating factor in my life, perhaps even more so than if he were alive. In many respects, I, I was kind of sort of chasing his ghost. And, you know, I, I followed him to college. I did journalism initially in large part because he did journalism. And then ultimately I decided to become a lawyer. And then he was a federal prosecutor in Washington, D.C., where I grew up. And, and I ended up pursuing that path. Um, there was a, a degree to which I was trying to connect with him in following his sort of life's path. Um, and I, you know, I, I didn't, after I left the U.S. Attorney's Office myself and my time as a federal prosecutor, I certainly, you know, would not have expected that I'd be sitting here talking to you or had done impeachment. And, and it is, I think often about um, how much I wish I could share the, the experiences I've had with him. Yeah, I'm sure. You know, when I, uh, when I lost my dad, the thing that I was 19 and I was already in college and I was kind of estranged from my, from my mom. And I, I, it was like in that, at that moment, my childhood was over and my, my, my adulthood began. Uh, you were the oldest. Uh, did you feel responsibility as the oldest, uh, child to sort of look after your younger siblings and provide something? I mean, did it change you in some way? Absolutely. And, and somewhat instantaneously, you know, my mother did a, an amazing job of, of raising us and notwithstanding her own heartbreak. Um, but yeah, I, I made a lot more of an effort to play catch with my brother and to go to my sister's piano recitals and to try to fill in with some of the presence that, you know, my father would have, would have had. Um, and it is, but I think that's a good analogy. And, you know, is that you sort of feel a little bit like your childhood's over and you need to grow up a little bit quicker. When you uh, went off to college, you went to Yale, you say you were interested in, in uh, first in journalism, and I know you did some journalism. Um, did you, uh, uh, you, you, was it just that your dad had done it? What was it about journalism that uh, attracted you and what ultimately caused you to, to, uh, to go back to uh, to law school, I, I my father had been um, a writer for the Yale Daily News when he was in college, and and I knew that I actually was um, involved with the high school newspaper, and then I got to college and and started writing for um, for the Yale Daily News. I, I was a sports writer, and I used to like to you know say as many uh, as many sports writers are that I wasn't good enough to play the sports, so at least I'd write about them. Uh, and ultimately, well, I, I should interrupt the- you and tell you that I yesterday when I was uh, reviewing my notes for this, I, I called a friend of mine, Theo Epstein, who uh, uh, recently re- resigned after ten year, ten splendid years as the uh, as the president of the Chicago or nine as the president of Chicago Cubs, and you know him well, Hall of Fame candidate in the future yep. for what he's done. He was a few years ahead of you as a sports writer on the Yale Daily News, and I called him to ask if he, he said you were, he wished, he wished he had been there with you, he said, because he would have loved to know you, but he was a few years ahead of you, he said. Yeah, Theo is, um, 
uh, probably the the Yale Daily News. Uh, well, there's some great alums. I won't say that he's the the finest alum of the Yale Daily News. Um, but uh, but yes, I followed in uh, in Theo's footsteps as the sports editor of uh, the Yale Daily News. I think he was three years ahead of me. Um, so and then after that, I actually. I thought I would give it a, a shot. I, I felt like there was, uh, you know, there's something about journalism and, and, you know, both of us have now after different careers spent a little bit of time in the, in the media world. And, and I do feel like there's some aspect, the, the importance of journalism and particularly, you know, in this, this Trump and Trump era is, is heightened so much because, there is a real need to provide um, accurate information, detailed information. And I think the media and journalism is such a lifeblood of our democracy um, that I, I felt like there was a lot to, to uh, you know, there was, I had an interest in sports and there was a lot to gain from it. But And then after college, I actually went to work for NBC Olympics as an Olympic re- Olympics researcher for the uh, 2000 Olympics, which was a pretty amazing job. I traveled around the world, basically interviewing athletes, coaches, journalists uh, for the Olympic sports um, and, uh, and felt like, all right, maybe there's a, a career in, in television to some degree, but ultimately I was drawn back to sort of the intellectual rigor of, of the law and feeling like I, uh, there was more, there are more options out there for me um, yeah. as someone who was was interested in in civil rights work, in uh, legal equal rights. Um, I, I wrote my senior thesis on the the Jewish involvement in the civil rights movement in the South. So there was always this nagging thing. My father, my family, yeah. a bunch of lawyers. So I thought I'd try law school. By the way, in that you you were uh, a predecessor of yours in that Olympic job was Jeff Zucker, who uh, <laughs> who went on to other things as well. Now, president yep. of uh, CNN, you you clerked for a couple of judges. Uh, one of them uh, was Charles Breyer, who is the brother of Justice Breyer. Uh, another Robert Sack. One of the things that interested me is both of them had experience around Watergate. Um, uh, yeah, I think uh, uh, Judge, I, I forget which is which, but I think Judge Breyer was at the DOJ working on the Watergate stuff, a uh, Watergate investigation, could, shouldn't, shouldn't call it stuff. And and, and uh, uh, Judge Sack, who is an appellate court judge you clerked for, uh, was uh, a counsel to the Senate Watergate Committee. Uh, did you go back when you were doing your work uh, and talk to either of them about their experiences uh from that time and were, did they talk to you at that time about having had those experiences? Yeah. While I was clerking, I, I did learn about it. And in fact, it was really judge Breyer who uh, turned me on to the idea of becoming, you know, of really pursuing actively a prosecutor. I knew my father had done it, but I, I had that interest in doing civil rights work. And when I clerked for him, he had been a, an assistant district attorney after his Watergate experience in San Francisco and then became a criminal defense lawyer. And he just felt like the experience that you got as a, a line prosecutor was the, the best training ground that you could get in the law. It was doing important good work, but it was also just really learning how to be a lawyer. So he, he strongly encouraged me. But it is, it's kind of an ironic twist that they both were involved in the, the Watergate issue. I mean, so many of the 
sort of venerable lawyers came out of, you know, some aspect of the Watergate. Another Chicagoan of yours, Jill Weinbanks, yes, uh, was you know the, the very involved in that, and and you know there are so many uh, similarities, but there there are a lot. The differences were are pretty significant between the Ukraine matter and and Watergate. Um, there were there were so many different aspects of Watergate, right? There was the criminal prosecution and the criminal investigation. There was the House investigation, there was the Senate, it really was the Senate Watergate Committee primarily. Um, that is actually the, probably the closest analogy to what we did as part of Ukraine, um, the Ukraine issue in the House Intelligence Committee. Um, but Judge Breyer and Judge Sack were, were and are wonderful mentors of mine. And uh, I think any law student who has an opportunity to clerk for a judge should jump at it because you really get a great perspective, not only from your judge, but just of the legal system. You went to the Southern District of New York, which has a kind of storied history. Um, did you seek out that assignment? Did you want to go there? Yes, uh, very much. Um, I, I only applied to the, uh, well, I first applied to the Southern District and ended up getting the job. So um I didn't end up applying to the Eastern District, uh, which is also a great, yeah. a great office in Brooklyn. Um, yeah, I, you know, it was an unconventional path to the Southern District. Typically, people have a little bit more experience at a law firm doing white collar work, uh, and then they they apply into the office. I went straight in from a clerkship, which was uh, atypical, uh, which is atypical. But it's it, it, the office. I didn't even realize it when I was applying. I knew its reputation. I knew that it had um, such robust uh, units that prosecuted terrorism and and corruption and securities and uh, organized crime, among others. That it was uh, it provided so many different opportunities to to explore my interests, um, but it the the reputation I think that really jumped out at me that I appreciated was it the reputation for independence and it's been put to the test over the past few years. I think it's held up quite well. Um, but that is, you know, the, that was always something that, that I was drawn to, you know, the idea of doing, uh, the, the right thing for the right reasons, um, was so important without fear or favor. Pre Barara was, uh, your, uh, your boss there uh, for much of that time. Um, so how did you carve out this specialty of yours, uh, which is going after, you know, the Russian mafia and ultimately the homegrown mafia? How did you gravitate to that? Seems like a seems like kind of a gritty pursuit for a, uh, a, a, a Sidwell friends lifer from uh, Washington, D.C., <laughs> Um, I loved it. I love the sort of the thrill of, of going after um, organized criminals, organized crime syndicates. And, and part of the reason is because these were people who were professional criminals. They had made a decision to dedicate themselves to a life of crime. And I felt like those were the most righteous prosecutions. This was, these were not crimes of opportunity uh, where someone got a, a 
you know, some inside information, for example, and had to make a decision as to whether or not they were going to capitalize on it, even though, you know, they, but, but I don't know, in a one-off opportunity, one-off chance. I mean, these were really bad people. Um, and not all of them were violent and you don't have to be, you know, violent criminal to be a bad, bad person. These are people who deserve to be prosecuted, deserve to be put away in jail. And, and it was, it was exciting. I mean, the, some of the stories, you know, that I, and investigations I had were as close to the real life Sopranos as you could imagine. Um, I did a case with another one of your uh, CNN colleagues, Ellie Honig, yes. where we we dug up a, uh, the FBI dug up a buried body that had been uh, someone who had been murdered and put in a hole in the backwoods of Massachusetts in 2003. And eight years later, the FBI dug it up. I mean, there were some, some crazy stories. And, and so it was fun. It was exciting. It's kind of like, you know, this is, this is a real prosecutor prosecutor's case we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the axe files and now back to the show let let me ask you a question um did the name Donald Trump come up at, uh, at all in your wanderings around at that time? Uh, because it's been, you know, reported many, many times that he had a uh, had a interesting relationship with organized crime figures in New York, maybe for business reasons, uh, and also with Russian Russian actors. Uh, was that something that? And I don't know what you can say, but um, I want you to say as much as you can say. Well, I couldn't say. Uh if if it did um but i think i can say that it didn't so uh, okay fair enough <laughs> no i never i never came across um donald trump uh, in any of my my work um so it's you know i mean i think his a lot of the sort of reported mafia connections were back in the 90s um and they're you know i i don't know that there's i'm not sure all of the details about his Russian connections. That was frankly a large part of what I was trying to lead an investigation to find out in the House Intelligence Committee. That's principally why I went down to work for Adam Schiff on that committee is that he wanted to run a financial investigation to determine whether there were any uh, conflicts of interest that would compromise Donald Trump as president of the United States. And there was, there was, a, lot, there was a lot of smoke for obvious reasons around Russia Donald Trump's behavior towards Vladimir Putin was such an outlier as to how he behaved towards uh, just about everybody else. It just defied any kind of understanding or logic. So we wanted to look into that to see if there was some explanation for it. But because of Donald Trump's litigious nature, uh, ultimately, we, d we didn't get a lot of the materials that we needed to do that. Do you think some of these loose ends are still out there? And do you think that he he has vulnerabilities? Look, there's there are a lot of investigations. Um, you know, I, I do. I said this uh, in 2018. Um, I think he committed campaign finance fraud. Um, I, I think it, whether someone does something and whether it can be proved beyond a reasonable doubt based on admissible evidence are two very different questions. How about these state state and local probes that are going on? 
Yeah, and we'll be interesting to see, you know, what comes from that. I, I don't know what's in, you know, some of the stuff that Michael Cohen talked about in his congressional testimony, you know, related to... Inflating and deflating the value of exactly, his for, for different purposes. Just from a prosecutor's perspective, you know, when you're when you're trying to figure out a proper valuation for something, that's a very difficult thing to have an objective measure of. But when you have the same person valuing the same thing differently there's an internal inconsistency where only one of them can be right so you know from a prosecutor's perspective that's a lot easier to charge than if we, you had to do some sort of independent objective mm -hmm. measure of the valuation of something so that is certainly something that you know i would expect uh the da's office to be looking into you, uh, your last big case there was against uh, a guy named Billy Walters, uh, who uh, was a Las Vegas uh, uh, sports uh, gambler who was convicted of this ma in this massive ins insider trading case. He was uh, granted clemency by uh, Donald Trump recently. Let me ask you a very hard question. You were out celebrating the night you got that verdict in the Walters case, and you got with your with FBI agents and I, I presume prosecutors as well for the success of the case, you got some terrible news. Tell me about that night and that call. Yeah, this was a couple. Um, this was a couple. This is maybe I think a couple a week after his sentencing or shortly after his sentencing, and we were going out for uh, drinks to um, you know thank to sort of thank each other and everybody for the. The, all the hard work that we had put into that case. Um, and I got a call from my sister um, that my brother had died in a plane crash. Uh, and I will never, ever forget uh, that phone call and where I was um, to hear that my, my brother was a pilot and had a, a small plane out in San Francisco and was taking his two kids and his, uh, his babysitter uh, for a flight to go get some lunch somewhere, uh, and his engine gave out and he went down, um, and he passed away and my niece passed away and the babysitter and my nephew survived. Um, and they're thankfully physically okay today. Um, but yeah, that was a, um, that was a jolt. That was, uh, more than a jolt. It was, it was, uh, incredibly, a uh, difficult phone call and time period um, in you know for in my life i'm sure you i'm sure having lost your your dad when you did you can provide something to your nephew in terms of understanding you know yeah i try i try it's a little bit uh I, i'm the you know i'm the only male in my family to have lived past 42 um so it's you know i i I think about that a lot. I think about my nephew. Um, I think about my brother. My brother was uh, incredibly politically engaged, and um, our he was a history professor, and I was a prosecutor. But where you know politics had nothing to do with my job in the U.S. Attorney's Office, I didn't really pay that much attention to it. Um, and now, sort of, you know through my impeachment world, impeachment life, uh, our interests have collided, sadly, after he's passed away. But I think about him all the time. You've said that your conversations with him about Trump uh, shortly before he 
passed away were influential in your in your desire to get involved in the in the impeachment yeah no that they played a big role in me going down to dc i i commuted down to washington from new york i have five children it was very difficult um on my family my wife um but i felt you know some i know my brother was was becoming interested in I was incredibly knowledgeable about politics um, and was interested in getting involved in government. And, and there was an opportunity that I felt not only I was interested in, but I thought that he would be, you know, appreciative of and that I could do a little bit of, of the work that I know he wanted to do. So that was absolutely a motivating factor. When you say that you're the only male who's lived past 42, what is that? What does that give you? What sense does that give you about the fragility of life and the preciousness of every day? Well, as as you would imagine, I it's um, I, that year. You know, my I was I was forty one uh, when my brother passed away, and um, you know that whole year I was forty two. I was like panicked until I turned forty three. Yeah makes no sense but uh i just felt like something i've now passed the age that my dad was when he died and and i lived with for years and years and years apprehension about about that about whether i would you know it's natural i think to think that way yeah i i i think it certainly was for me and now you know as i as I contemplate next steps, you know, one of the things I think a lot about is what, what does truly matter. And it was hard to be away from my family. And I just made the, you know, made the decision that I'm, I, I'm not going to do that again. So I, um, the, the, when you talk about appreciating what you have and appreciating life, you know, there's the old adage, no one on their deathbed says, I wish, I wish I worked more. Um, and so, you know, the, the opportunity and, and to, over the past year to sort of spend a lot of time with my family has been really, really helpful, uh, really nice and really meaningful to me. And, and I think a lot about my brother who, um, was such a family man and gave so much, you know, to his, his family and his kids. And, uh, it's the fragility of life is real and I've experienced it sadly. You talk about going down to D.C. Is it true that you uh, that the whole thing <clears throat> began with a uh, running into Adam Schiff in the green room at NBC? Yes, that's exactly what happened. It was June of 2018. We both were doing the 11 p.m. show uh, with Brian Williams as the anchor, and um, I was on with a couple other people in the, the first block, and then Adam Schiff was going to be on, and Brian says. Coming up next, we'll have Adam Schiff in studio. I said to Brian, I was like, he's here. And and I was a great admirer of Adam's. Yeah. Um, at the time, I just think he's a, a incredibly smart, thoughtful, um, eloquent congressman and, and a former prosecutor as well. So I, I waited for him to finish. And as we were taking our makeup off in the green room, uh, we were chatting about the Mueller investigation. I think that we traced this back to that was the day that uh, Trump first floated the idea of pardoning himself. Um, and so we were, we were kind of, uh, chatting about that. And, and I said to him on the way out, I said, look, if there's ever an opportunity for me to, to 
come help you in any way, let me know. And, and he said, you know, there isn't now. Uh, but if we get the majority there, there may be. And the house flipped in November. And a couple of weeks later, I got a call from his, his team, uh, Maher Batar, the fabulous general counsel, uh, who's now, um, for the, uh, house intelligence committee at the time. And, uh, went down to, to work for him in, in January of 19. You worked for a year on this project. Tell me about the, your general reflections on that experience. And, you know, impeachment, I said this last night on, on, uh, on, on TV, but you know, whether or not there is a conviction, and there never has been in the history of this country because it's set up to make, be very, very difficult to achieve. The airing of these issues is an important thing for the country. In this case, that airing was made more difficult by the fact that Republicans in the Senate resisted witnesses and resisted the full presentation that you probably wanted to make. I mean, do you feel like you guys accomplished uh, accomplished something important by doing it? Uh, or do you feel like you fell short of the goal and therefore you fail? No, I, I do feel like histor- for historical purposes, among others, it was very important that we we did this. You know, when when this issue came out in September of 2019, which was about eight months into my time there, um, we it, it had it had the groundswell of support from really the entire Democratic caucus in in the House in a way that the Mueller investigation had not, and some of the other emolument stuff, some of the other issues that were raised related to Donald Trump's uh, conduct in office just had not gained the same traction. But, you know, it's impeachment, as you pointed out at the beginning, is an inherently political thing. But we ran the investigation like I would have run any investigation in the U.S. Attorney's Office. I mean, we didn't we were in a pure fact finding mission. And we were trying to get as many witnesses as we could as fast as we could to try to learn and get documents as when we could. And, and, you know, Donald Trump took unprecedented steps to obstruct the investigation um, and made it as difficult as possible on us. But I think at the end of the day, we were able to sort of put together an important narrative that showed how Donald Trump used his power, the, the most awesome power, which you are so familiar with from your time in President Obama's administration. And he used it just for his own personal gain to try to cheat in the election. And that's really important, I think, to call out, to push forward, to say that's not okay. Um, and even if because of the ultimate partisan nature of our government, you're not going to get two thirds of the senators to convict, um, I think it's still important to lay down the marker and to say that, you know, you're impeached because you abuse the power of your office and that this going forward will be used as a precedent for impeachment. And people will look back to it and say, OK, this isn't what an abuse of power is, just like we look back to Clinton and Nixon and Andrew Johnson. Yeah. And it is it was a prequel. You can really view the first impeachment in in light of the second impeachment, because the impulse was the same, which is basically to subjugate uh, all powers of the presidency to maintenance of the president in office. And yeah, his, there's a direct through line. There's yeah. a direct through line. I mean, he, he tried to cheat in the election through extorting Ukraine to announce bogus investigations that would have been the equivalent of 
Hillary's emails in 2016. He failed in part because, you know, the young president of Ukraine stood up to him. I mean, it's sad that Ukraine, of all places, showed more democratic fortitude than Donald Trump did. But but the president did. And and I think in part because we caught him trying to do what he was doing, that he had to stop. And now failing to cheat in the election, uh, he tried to steal it. And, you know, it is... It, I, you ask whether it was worth it, right? When you go back and you look at what what some people, how some people justified their vote to say, look, let's let the voters decide in November. And I get that. I understand, you know, from, from their standpoint, it's a political animal anyway. It's not like, oh, this is a legal proceeding and then the election is a political thing. It's all political. I understand it. I, I, I didn't... It wasn't that disheartening to me that they felt that, even though I under, you know, I could make the argument, did make the argument that impeachment is in the Constitution for a reason, in addition to elections. Um, but then to, for him to try to steal and overthrow yes. the voters' will in November, uh, you know, ratchets, ratchets up the conduct to a, a whole nother level. I can't let you go without asking you, Given your commitment to public service, do you see yourself in public service again? I do. I really hope to. It's hard to figure out how or where, but I'm. Uh, I would love nothing more. Could you? Would you run? Would you run for office? You know, it's not. It's not a priority of mine right now. It's not a focus of what I want to do. I'm. I'm. You know, would love to join the Biden administration in some capacity if there was a an opportunity for me to do so. I feel like my background as a lawyer is what what really drives me, not as a, a politician. And mm-hmm. frankly, being in, in D.C. for a year does not make me want to be a politician any more uh, than it did before. But. You know, the the advantage and, and the appeal of being in office is that, you know, you write the laws and you can actually have the most impact, the most material change of anything is through laws and that are enacted uh, more than interpreting laws or enforcing laws. So there is that appeal. But, you know, politics is a tough game right now. And the partisanship is is really unfortunate. Well, I, I have a strong uh, sense that we have we have not heard the last from you in any way, and I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful for your service and for this time with you, Dan Goldman. Great to be with you. It's really been a pleasure, David. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Jeff Fox, Hannah McDonald, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 